Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. I've had eight books published already, and I just finished my second novel, so stay tuned for news about when and where you can read it. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com, and you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast, where you'll find stories of courageous people daring to share their talent with the world. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. I have a great opportunity coming up in January 2023 called the Author Brand and Marketing Mastermind. This is a 12-week program for which I'm only going to accept 10 writers, and there are just a few spots left. It's a great opportunity to delve into your writer brand and also create a marketing plan that you feel confident to implement. Today, we all know that writers, no matter whether they're published with a big publishing house or self-publishing or somewhere in the middle, have to help out with the marketing of their works. If you want to sell books, if you want to get your writing published, if you really want to build a name for yourself as a writer, this is the course for you. I am now accepting applications for registration, and you can learn more at lynngaladner.com. Get your spot before it's sold out. Sarah Henning writes gorgeous poetry and teaches others to do the same. I first encountered her through her incredible writing in a writer's workshopping group that I'm lucky to be a part of. Sarah sent a poem that knocked me out of my chair and made me envy her incredible talent and focused eye. Her latest book, Terra Incognita, is dedicated to her late mother, and the poems take the reader through a grief journey and a reckoning with what is versus what could have been. Today, I am thrilled to speak with Sarah about her writing practice, her journey toward a satisfying and complex writing career, and how she makes sense of a complicated life by putting words on the page. So, Sarah, it's such a delight to have you here on the podcast. It's um, such a selfish pursuit because after experiencing some of your gorgeous poems, I wanted to understand how you channel emotion and insight into words on the page. So I'm going to jump right in and ask you to take me through how Terra Incognita came to be. Absolutely, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast. I've enjoyed listening to your episodes, and I'm particularly uh, taken by the notion of of making meaning because I think, particularly um, in books like Terra Incognita, where I really was looking for that sense of of meaning, you know, in the wake of my mother's death, I think yeah. it's important to consider when one is is conceptualizing and, and and mapping grief that, you know, just as important, I think, is is when one's on the other side of grief, trying to make meaning of it. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. 
So yeah, so for Terra Incognita, um, I my mother passed away from uh, from metastatic colon cancer in mm. 2016, and she was a single mother. And my father had passed away many many years ago, and I felt that sense of um, of bonding and protection that often yeah. comes mothers and daughters who are, you know, who it's, you know, my mother would always say it's you and me against the world. And for a long time, I, I very much took that to heart. And so yeah. um, when she passed away, I really sort of lost my bearings. I, I didn't know because um, everything for me, you know, would be, I, I want to do this to make my mother happy or proud of me um or here's how I'm going to schedule you know all of the time that I'm you know that I'm not engaged in in school or work is generally calling or visiting and I really lost my center uh for, for, for a long time um what I ended up doing was uh turning to grief memoir uh creative nonfiction specifically um yeah and you know, reading wonderful books like Megan O'Rourke's The Long Goodbye, I think that's the one that really taught me a lot about grief. Um, Cheryl Strayed's Wild. I mean, there's so many of them I went to. And then when I had the when I had the capability to to think about poetry again, um, yeah. to bring myself back to the art that I I turn to when I'm trying to find meaning. I, I really that's that's when I when I can't find meaning. I I think I go to I, I go to my research mode, and then yeah. when I are seeking the meaning in in interpolating some of some of those things that's when I turn to poetry and Kevin Young has a wonderful anthology called um called the art of losing um mm. my goodness Allison Joseph's my father's kites mm-hmm. um Patricia Smith's both blood dazzler and incendiary art there's so many good ones uh, Marie Howe's um, what the living do I just yeah. found myself just immersing myself in these narratives and trying to understand them um and I found myself not wanting to write about my mom because yeah. it just it felt it felt hard um yeah and it felt so raw and I didn't know what to say besides I'm angry my mother isn't here um, yeah yeah I'm careful about using sort of Latinic phrases um mm-hmm. because I think it can Particularly, um, I don't want to use the word alienate, but I I think sometimes it can alienate a general reader. They see a Latin phrase and they're like, oh, this is going to be stuffy or or boring. Um, But I mean, so Terra Incognita really did come from that sense of the Latin for unknown land. I mean, it's it's a it's a old cartography reference where, you know, um, the lands that hadn't been charted. Um, yeah. any of any of those lands could have dragons or all sorts of wild fantastical creatures lurking on them. And for me, I really um I kept going back to this poem that Marie Howe wrote um from the from what the living do, which again mm-hmm. is the one I kept going back to. Um mm-hmm. and I'm 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 looking I'm looking down at a piece of paper that has the three lines that I'd like to quote. Um yes. I had I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. Mm. Uh, mm. And that's John, her, her brother, John, who passed away from HIV related complications. Um, yeah. And so I thought about, you know, what does it mean to re-enter the world after grief? What does it mean to, do we step through the spaces that our loved ones make or do we forge our own realities? Um, yeah. 
And so that really got me thinking through uh, the the trajectory of the book. So the first section, Terra Inferna, literally hell on earth. That's why I was just in shock and exploring that. Um, The next one, Terra Incognita, where I'm really grappling um, with the Kubler-Roth's notions of anger and depression. Uh, Terra Nova, New World, that's where I'm coming to a sense of acceptance. And Terra Firma, which for me was such an empowering section to write because uh, David Kessler, who helped uh, Kubler-Ross with much of much of uh, her research, yeah. um, just came out with a new a new manual about the sixth stage of grief, which which is in fact finding meaning. Yeah. And for me, Terra Inferna, um, the the earth under one's boots, coming back to ground, figuring out what life after grief really looks like, and it can oftentimes be quite beautiful. Yeah, I, I'm going to try to do this interview without breaking down because you're inspiring so many things that I can relate to. Um, you know, I found that after my father died, which has been, I guess, two and a half years now, all I could do was write about him. And which was interesting because I would start to write about something else and it ended up being about him. You know, like I swim all the time and I was writing an essay about swimming and it ended up being about how you know, he was in the pool when I was a little girl and he actually was a high school swimmer. And, um, you know, and then at the point where his illness, he had a port in his chest. And so Mm -hmm. if you were in a pool, it it would be deadly, you know? And so I was going to write about my love of swim and how it's meditative and that's how I work through things. And then it ended up being about him. So everything for a period of time was like about my father, even if it didn't start out that way. And then one day, it's like I I was done writing about grief. It was like, oh, okay, I got through it. Like that was my process or something. And I, it could have been it's probably a year, maybe a year, year and a half. Um, so I was wondering like how much distance you needed from your mother's death to write these poems or was this your way of moving through the grief? I think that is an excellent question because I, and I, what you described, Lynn, um, it touched me so much because you, you described it perfectly. I sit down to write something and I can't help but weave my lost person into that because yeah. for us, I mean, for many of us, parents are so integral to introducing us to the world, introducing yeah. us to the way we will experience reality. Um, that's why I think the devastation of that loss is so earth-shakingly profound. Yeah. Um, and and you're right. I you know once I really told myself, all right, well, if you're going to write about this, you're you know just just write it out. And when I was done, um, I really do feel like there there was a sense of catharsis. I, I didn't I didn't maybe necessarily turn to the poems to be catharsis, but um, I turned to them to in some ways um, you know interrogate meaning. Um, yeah. You know, and also contribute to this what I what I I know that out there to be a, a wonderful compilation of of grief narratives and all sorts of different genres. I wanted to share my experience because it can be so lonely and literature sometimes can be um the companion that we maybe can't have in life because we feel too emotionally shut down to to reach out for help. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I think there really was for me um, quite a bit of distance. I 
So my mother passed away in May and I journaled a lot. Um, May of 2016, I journaled a lot, but in terms of actually writing, um, it took about a year for me mm-hmm. to be ready to do it. Um, yeah. Mostly just because I felt very wordless. I didn't have a way yet to to conceptually map my my feelings. And yeah. being the executrix of her will, I was the person in charge of paying the mortgage and selling the house and wow. liquidating her belongings and keeping what I could. And this was from states away, and you know all oh, of these bureau. You know what I like to call the the bureaucracy of death. People yeah. can prepare you for how difficult it is to have to put your emotions away and just deal with you know credit credit people they want their money and they yeah it's just what you do and I think because I had to do a lot of that um and I was in such a deep state of shock I felt like I was actually really good at at doing that because I didn't have to I didn't uh, that didn't let me give myself the permission to to feel the death because I to perform these actions that were the repercussions of the death. And so um, for me, I think one of my greatest defense mechanisms is researching, doing, and, and, and putting my feelings somewhere deep inside that they can't come out. And then when they do come out, um, there's perhaps a delayed reaction and then it's, it's really, so it took a while. Yeah. Well, all the business tasks that come with death are really a distraction. And it's like, it, instead of feeling it all, it's like, okay, I have to take care of these things. And then, and then that's gone. It's just like the, the mourning process, you know, I'm Jewish. And so, you know, somebody dies, you bury them quickly, and then people come to your house for days, and then they're not there anymore. And so it's like, all of that distracts you because you have to take care of it all. And, um, and then it's like, you're with the silence. And, and then that's really loud, you know, <laughs> so I totally understand that. And, and I can see, I, if I think about it, I probably didn't start writing those essays for six months to a year after he died as well. I think you need that sort of immersive time before you can look back on it and make sense of it. Oh, you said it perfectly. Um, you're with the silence. Yeah. It's so loud. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. It's, I can't just pick up the phone and, and call my mother when I have a question or something, or even if I just, you know, want to, I don't know. It's, it, it's the silence. Yeah. It's yeah. that absence. It's it was unbearable for me. Um, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. I really do appreciate you talking about it here. I know it can't be easy, even though you have this beautiful book that I'm sure you're talking about all over the place. But that sort of brings it back front and center every time you talk about the book. So it's like, how wonderful that you're getting all these all this exposure, but how difficult <laughs> that you have to keep talking about it, right? In some ways, yes. But I think the thing that's been so rewarding for me is um, when I'm when I'm at a reading, um, oftentimes people will come up afterward and they will share their stories about their experiences with loss. And for me, you know, I've had people come up and ask if I, if they can hug me and talk about, you know, their experiences and, you know, how, how certain poems that I'd read or ones that, you know, that they, that they had read in the book just really helped them to articulate, you know, their feelings. And there's something 
exceptionally rewarding about being able to do that kind of service for another person who is grappling with um, their own loss. Well, and that's the power of writing because, you know, I tell my students, and I imagine you may tell your students this, but I tell them if if one person is touched or changed or encouraged or supported by something you wrote, then it was worth putting it out there. Yeah. And hopefully it's more than one person, which it usually is. So um, I think that that's the power of being able to put it down on the page and then leave it with someone else and let them take it in in the way that they need to take it in as well. And it stops. And in some ways, it always is your story. But in some ways, and I think this is true of literature, once it's on the page and it's out in the world, I mean, it's it's yours in some way, but it's really the reader's. Absolutely. Um, the way that I would understand say poems or essays when I was 20 was vastly different than the way I might approach them at, at 30 or 35. And so the fact that um, what a reader is going to get out of that work at different stages in their life is yeah. really, um, again, rewarding in so many different ways. Yeah. So I wanted to quote a few lines from Terra Firma from the poem um, and then ask you a, a question that it sort of inspired. Um, so the lines that really jumped out at me were, grief is an island of mercy touching my skin. It hurts like hell to bury your mother. I swallowed her storm as if love was duty, not weather. What is pain but a story of mercy? It lingers in my blood. All things end to end again. Mm-hmm. And I, I skipped ahead a little bit in there, but that whole poem just was so powerful. And I was wondering if you feel that this book is more about moving through grief or um, letting go of the good and the bad, like sort of mourning what could have been or maybe what you wanted to be, mm-hmm. as opposed to just mourning what was? Mm. What can be so difficult about grief um, is that particularly when we mourn people who um, we have complicated relationships with. Um, that's, I think, the the beautiful and the scary part of being of being human, right? Is that we can embody so many different emotional reactions in the way we love. Um, yeah. My mother was a very difficult human being. Um, mm-hmm. I loved her with all of my heart. I loved her intensely. Um, Cheryl Strayed said of her mother, uh, who also was lost to cancer, that she was in many ways the love of her life. Mm. I felt very much that way about my mother, but my mother was um, my mother was bipolar, um, mm. refused to take medication. Um, yeah. In many ways, uh, she exhibited lots of, and I'm I'm no psychologist. I <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I and I, I would never claim to be, but you know, exhibited so many signs of, of borderline personality disorder. Um, she was prone to rages. She was prone to um, really kind of uh, self abuse when she was, you know, when she was manic, um, spending sprees. She'd smoke, you know, two packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. When when you know someone would try to you know, to help her or, 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 you know, gently confront the behavior. She, she could get very verbally combative. Um, mm. In, in some ways, my, my duty, I felt like my duty as her daughter was to, um, to be her daughter, but also be her protector and mm. her advocate. Um, yeah. Because in many ways, I didn't think she did a very good job of, of doing that for herself, particularly once she, mm-hmm. um, 
found out that she was she was terminally ill. Um, yeah, yeah. Because we found that out about how many months was it? Uh, January, February, March. So about five months before she passed away, we found out that the cancer was in fact terminal. Um, oh gosh, it had been stage four for close to three years. And, oh wow. Yeah, and so I think that um, what this book is um, mourning mourning what was is something that I I think a lot of us do do naturally. Um, you know, we we mourn what was, but I think we also in mourning what was we mourn what what could have been. Yeah. Uh, and I think what can make, and when I say grief complicated and complicated grief, I know that's a its own psychological term that I'm not necessarily trying to co-opt, but just that, um, you know, when, when, when you have a, a relationship with someone that the love is also tied to uh, other feelings like resentment or, or deep anger or, or other sorts of things, I think there is something uh, about you know, learning to let go of not only, as you said, the are really well, the, the good and the bad, but yeah. being able to find your own sense of closure mm-hmm. when that other person isn't there to, or or even in life would be unwilling to yeah. discuss those matters that would allow that sense of closure to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the parent-child relationship is so complicated and and complex. I mean, and and as much as we adore our parents, and they're they're the people who are our anchors, and also help us make sense of the world from a you know from the earliest age, they're they're human, and so coming to terms with that and accepting that they're not the ideal you know wonderful person you thought they were when you were three years old, it's hard for anyone. And then you know to feel that love and that other emotion or emotions, mm-hmm. um, it's always complicated. So then, yeah, mourning is is the loss of all of it, you know, mm-hmm. and also the loss of the dream of what if my parent could have been more perfect, although I don't know that any parent really could be. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I try and very, very much in Tara, I try not to make my mother wrong. Um, I also try not to put her on a pedestal, which I think sometimes when someone is gone, we, we, we we could put them on a pedestal and say, oh, you know, mother and how perfect she was. And my mother was was human, like we yeah. all were. And, you know, so I I do, I think that um there's a lot of mourning, you know, letting go of the good and bad and 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 you know, interrogating difficult, difficult times. Um yeah. so the poems touch on um those difficult moments that yeah. that we experienced in in ways that I I wanted to be very emotionally honest about. And you were, I mean, you were really vulnerable and, and put it out there. Um, and, you know, in fact, I felt that your writing is really intense and I couldn't look away, but I also didn't want to look away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a bravery in that. You know, a lot of my students are so afraid to write the honest truth about something. They're afraid either of offending someone or having someone be mad at them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different when that person has passed away, but there are still other family members out in the world who could read it or who knows, you know? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you um, gave yourself permission to mm-hmm. achieve that intensity. And I mean, I think it, that the poems really um, are supported by that. I think they're so strong because of that, mm-hmm. but it takes a courage to 
put poems like that out in the world. So could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think this is this is very much um, an issue that people who write, you know, confessional works. Um, you know, I know that's that that term that that originated in the late fifties and sixties with Robert Lowell and in Sexton has very much, you know, it's um, it's evolved and shifted through the different generations that have have come after it. But I, I do feel like here in the twenty first century, we have some very strong. Um, you know, poets that 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 lean toward um, you know writing from the self, writing from the experience, speaking one's truth, and um, in in that way, I think it's a um, it's a it's something that creative nonfiction writers deal with a lot, which is you know what is the truth versus sort of what is one's truth. How does one handle the boundaries of really going there, really telling the story? Um, fearlessly. Um, and I think that for me, um, I gave myself permission to write about my mother, my relationship with my mother and her struggles with cancer, because I felt that um, my story and my experience, I was, I was joining a community of, of survivors. Um, yeah. And I felt like, you know, because if you, you know, you read, you read books like uh, Cheryl Strayed's Wild or mm-hmm. Mark Doty's Heaven, Heaven's Coast about, about losing his, his, his wonderful lover, Wally. I mean, they are, you know, they are unflinchingly vulnerable um, because that, that was the truth that needed to be there about the yeah. loss. And yeah. I think that, um, you know, I, I always encourage my students to write fearlessly um, and with their whole hearts, knowing that that, you know, some of it may stay in the journal, some sure. of it may go out into the world. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're writing your truth in a way that is not attempting to villainize someone or vindictively get back at someone, you know, if I think any loving relationship has a kind of an intensity, um, mm-hmm. if that intensity is honest and true, um, and and comes from from that from that good place. I think that one should should feel vindicated to lean into it. Yeah, yeah. So another poem that I wanted to mention and ask you about is Queening, where mm-hmm. you recount the birth of kittens and align it with that connection between a mother and a child, and then between your mother and you. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about this poem and and its larger meaning for you. You know, sort of what was in your vision as you were writing it. Yeah, I mean, so that so so that particular poem, I'm, I'm going to actually open up my book and and take a look at it. Um, yeah, it and if you'd even want to read it, I'm sure our listeners would love it. Although, if you aren't prepared to, I totally understand. Oh, I'm happy to read it. Absolutely, that'd be great. You have such a wonderful voice for it. So, yes, this will make an audio audible version of it. <laughs> Thank you, Queening. When our calico manx seizes up like the women at Auntie's church who writhe at the pulpit, moan the name of Jesus, my mother says she's queening. Exhausted on her floral towel, she licks herself in the laundry room near the water heater, amniotic sack enclosing a kitten like iridescent burlap. My mother grasps each tiny, wet body that comes, cuts the umbilical cord with scissors, ties off the placental scrim with dental floss. 
When she ceases to pant and squat, we believe they've all come. Two toms squalling from a heating pad. Hours later, one more will crest from her pelvic canal into the litter box. We won't find her until her mother's yowling draws us out of bed. When we cut the runt manx free, she struggles to breathe. All day, I watch her throng her mother for milk, eyes still sealed. Outside our house, children haunt the streets in tang-stained t-shirts. A splintering telephone pole leans into the crush. Birds gliding on electric wire, Houdini into air. I envy their brief mirage, their reckless miracle, the cat nimble around my mother's ankles as she turned the deadbolt last April, estrus cycle driving the cat to the heated canopy of azalea bushes, her scruff bitten by feral tom after feral tom, the spines on each penis triggering her ovulation. When she called to be let in, the morula was already forming. What intrigues me are the cells migrating in the body long after birth, fetal cells joining the mother's aortic surges, her brain's neurotransmitters, the individual platelets in her blood. Microchimerism, scientists call it, when really mother and child have bonded beyond their bones. Cells instinctual and rootless, tessellating the body like the smooth beige throats of beer bottles smashed in the street, the way my mother stepped through them to reach our front door, my head pressed to her hip our shadows fused to the glass flash. Years later, after tumors shudder inside her like a field of blown honeydew melons, I wonder if her love still lurks inside me, dark as placenta or the cats of my childhood, lusty boys delivered between tongued interludes, the lone female who slipped free from her mother. As with my grief, we found homes for the healthy, kept the bird-boned queen who learned to sleep on my chest at night. Like the cells that bind us, we welcomed her as our own. Mm. Whew, thank you for that. That was lovely. So Absolutely. tell me a little bit about this one. Yeah, um, I, I've always been, we've always had cats. Um, when I say we, my mother and I, and since then, um, I've got three. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've always had cats in my, in my vicinity. And my mother had this, um, this unspayed cat uh, named Bunny when I was very little. And um, this is the story of Bunny running out um, in heat 
you know, having some frolics with the local toms in the neighborhood and coming back pregnant and that kind of miracle of birth that you get to experience when you're little, when um, you watch an animal, um, you know, create life. And Brenda Miller and Susan Paola, um, what they say in Telling It Slant, which is to to find those river teeth, those Uh those um those first moments um that stay with us i think virginia wolf calls them the moments of being and i wanted to tie that into this idea of cellular legacy um you know when we come from uh, the people that love us when when we actually were were formed in their bodies and we become this you know the part of this scientific miracle that that is that is making making life um you know that idea of of the microchimerism um where you know the the cells of the cells of the mother found in the child and and those sorts of things how are we how do we experience um cellular cellular heredity um you know when someone is gone does does that person does the love they have stay mm. and also does the thing that took them you know how how is that possibility also of of what 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 took them from us also potentially lurking in our mm. bodies and so i think i really I took that. I took that that moment, um, the the memory of the cat, to explore genetic legacy in both. I think um, healing ways. That idea that I do believe that you know my mother's love is still exists in me, mm-hmm. but also that you know I may be because of my mother uh, more susceptible to to experiencing cancer later in life. Yeah, yeah. That's something that we just don't know anything about. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that in your beautiful voice. I think that writing about our parents is one of the hardest things that we can do. I think there's a brutal honesty that can come forth, but then it can be accompanied by guilt at not loving them perfectly mm-hmm. um, or or seeing them as imperfect. Um, there can be, as you said, anger about how they didn't love us the way we needed them to. Mm-hmm. You know. So what has been your experience of writing through being a daughter? It's interesting because, you know, I think many of us who lose our parents inevitably come to that question of, am I still a daughter? Um, Am I still a son? If there's no one alive to, to claim me or to, you know, to sustain that, that, that relationship. Um, And I mean, I think that again, and and it's it's very difficult to speak for anybody else's relationships with with their parents. However, um, just from my reading and my experience and many of my anecdotal, um, you know, things passed on to me by by friends of of mine, um, I think that mother daughter relationships are particularly intense, yeah. and that intensity can be can be good. That intensity can sometimes <laughs> not so good. Um, yeah. And I think that um, writing as a daughter in this book meant creating a, I don't know if I want to call it a living anthology, a living metric, something that demonstrates um, that my mother's life had happened and that our love was something that 
transformed me as a human being. Um, mm-hmm. I have a, I have an, I'm thinking about a, a line in Terra Nova, which is the, you know, the third line or the third section of the book. Um, and I'm thinking about um, this part that says, um, people say we look alike when a picture snaps me with my head thrown back, my laugh all horse teeth and sass, and sometimes a pull off an unfiltered cigarette and you're here like hard jade, another dark night of the soul. Sometimes I dream of your steel blue eyes, wake up with them instead of my own, which is to say, God is the geometry guiding our mercy. Hmm. I want to say love is the cigarette smoke haunting a heaven without you in six words, to win a bet like Hemingway, to master what's never been mine. So I say, the dusky half-life is most familiar. Mother, mother. Even the name obliterates me. Mm. Mm. Well, I've asked you some pretty difficult questions and you've held up very well. So kudos to you on that. I want to ask you a simpler question. At least I hope it is. Um, I'd like to hear about your writing career, you know, how it's grown, how you found publishing success and what may be on the horizon for you. Absolutely. Um, so I'm uh, currently speaking to you, Lynn, from uh, my new my so my new home in in Huntington, West Virginia. I recently took uh, a job as the as the as the poet, the tenure track poet on on faculty at Marshall University, which is a program that I adore, and you know, and I feel like the. I'm really um, being able to create meaningful uh, mentorship relationships with my students. Um, and I think that, you know, for, for many of us, um, being able to uh, establish a trajectory of, of our work can, you know, can help us it, find our way into these, into these mentorship roles. And, mm-hmm. and so I would say my, my breakout book um, was View from True North. Uh, it won the 2017 Crab Orchard Series Open Award um, and was published uh, by Southern Illinois University Press in 2018. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, I think that that's when um, my life began to change as a writer. I began to be invited um, to give more readings and to do more interviews. And um you know, and and I found that to be just just really a, a gift, a gift. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I didn't. Again, I, I I didn't know that Terra Incognito would be the the next major work. Um, sure. When when I was working on View from True North, that was my dissertation. Um, okay. And uh, and so Terra Incognita became, um, and and it in its own way was an elegy um, for for my grandfather. Um, and so I didn't know I had another elegy in me. <laughs> Um, when Terra Incognita, uh, I still remember I, I, it was the te- Texas, the Texas power grid, like, liked at that time I was living in Texas, um, like to kind of go down every time weather happened. And it was one of those days we had a power outage. It was, um, it was early winter and I got a call from Sarah Green um, and telling me that I, you know, Rebecca Morgan Frank had chosen Terra Incognita for the, uh, for the Hollis Summers Prize and wow. published by, you know, Ohio University Press this past year, this past March. And okay. I hadn't had my coffee yet because I couldn't run a coffee maker. <laughs> and I was just like, I need to call Sarah back, but I don't know if I can do this without coffee. But. <laughs> 
managed to do it without coffee. Uh And, and so, um, you know, being able to take that book, you know, and of course I was worried because at that time, of course, we're, we're still battling the pandemic and to what extent, you know, can we give, you know, readings in person, readings on zoom. Um, I was able to, to share my work, I think in, in, uh, in safe ways with audiences this past spring, this, this fall and, this fall and spring, I'm already having, uh, you know, a number of opportunities to talk with students at universities. Um, it's really rewarding. My next book, A Burn, um, was the editor's selection, the Cry Borchard series editor's selection. And Great. it will be coming out in fall of 2023. And, wow, that's yeah, amazing. It really, it's it's been a blessing, I think, because as writers, we never know what we write, if it's going to get traction, if <laughs> editors are going to want to look at it, um, you know, and I think what we have to do is we have to brace ourselves for rejection and we have to also brace ourselves for, um, for the yes and yeah. really celebrate that because as writers, I think, we, you know, rejection is a big part of <laughs> what, yes. what we do. I want to tell you, I, uh, you know, you know, I write essays, you've seen a lot of them. And um, so I just had one accepted like a week ago, and then it was published really fast, which was great. And so I I withdrew it from consideration for other publications I had sent it to. And then the next day, another publication emailed and said, we want to publish it. And I said, wow, that's great. But I did withdraw it yesterday. And I'm sorry if it wasn't sooner. I have others I could send you. And apparently I had already submitted another one to them in some other capacity. And they said, oh, well, the other one was a, a, you know, a high contender. So we'd like to take that. And this is an essay that I has, I started submitting a year ago. And I had pretty much given up that like anybody was ever going to look twice at it. And now it's going to be published. And I was like, yippee. Like, like I don't know how many times I submitted it. So I do think it's a huge part of writing. But I also, I always tell my students that being rejected is not really about you and the quality of your work. It's more about the person doing the rejection. It didn't fit for them at that moment. Mm-hmm. But it's about, it's a numbers game. It's like the more you're out there, the more likely you're going to get published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to tell my students that every rejection is an opportunity for somebody else to say yes. Yeah, yeah. Were you submitting individual poems before your first book came out or yeah. that yeah? Well, yeah. I was and and I was, you know, I was getting them in in some some journals that I was really, you know, excited about. Um and I, you know, when I when I submitted to the Crab Orchard series, it, you know, it it very much felt like one of those, okay, shoot for the moon and maybe you'll be <laughs> among the stars, you know. And and I think that 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 negative thinking of of am, am I good enough to submit to this thing? Yeah. Uh, a lot that I think that imposter syndrome really can 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 do a number on a lot of us and I think we have to 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 do it scared and say you know what I you know this work is I believe in it I've spent time with it Um, I'm gonna try and if the answer is no there's always another contest there's always another journal somebody you know it may find resonance somewhere else I like do it scared I'm gonna use that if you don't mind that's beautiful So as our conversation comes to a close, what advice might you offer aspiring writers that are listening to this podcast? 
I think first of all, let's do it scared. All right. (laughs) That's that's definitely one of them. Um, And also, I think one of of the, the things that I really encourage my creative writing students to do is be willing to take risks. Be willing, again, to sort of write with sort of the whole of your heart, you know, what in whatever form that is. I mean, I know not everybody writes creative nonfiction or confessional poetry. Writing from the heart can be, you know, writing that book of fiction or, you know, writing that, you know, writing that humorous poem that maybe you never felt like you, you know, you, you, you could get yourself to write. Um, mm-hmm. So being, being able to, to do that. So doing it scared. Um, you know, being willing to take risks and, you know, really believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you are going to be, I mean, many people are going to lift people up and that's mm-hmm. the beauty of the writing community as, you know, we have to lift each other up because, you know, we, we are, you know, we're a family of sorts, Yeah. but I think we can't lift others up and we can't be lifted up if we can't learn that that we are allowed to take up space at the table and that what we are writing matters and that we as human as humans, our experience matters. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of time that, you know, that I practice with my students taking up space, mm-hmm. feeling that sense of agency, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people have been told or that they don't matter. And I think those internalized voices can really hold um, an exceptional writer with an exceptional story back. Yeah. 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 Lovely advice. This has been such a delight to speak with you, Sarah Henning. And um, I'm just so glad that I finally get to meet you face to face, hopefully one day soon in person. Um, so that's what I'll be holding out for. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being a guest on the Make Meaning podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngalodner.com.